This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What's happening today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? Uh, Dave, I'm feeling pretty badass today. How about you? You are. Is there a reason that you're feeling? Have you been reading any books lately to give you new adjectives to describe yourself? You think that that's the reason I chose badass today? You're right. Because today we're talking to music journalist and author, Catherine Yeske-Taylor. She just wrote this book. She's a badass. Women in rock shaping feminism. She has talked to 20 rock stars of varying ages. She talks to female rock stars and their experience in the music industry. It was very eye-opening to read about their experiences. They had similar experiences no matter their age. But it was interesting to read about their feelings about the term feminism, which we'll get into in the book uh, when you hear their stories. Kat did a great job assembling this group of women, and they all had interesting stories, as does Kat. She has an interesting story herself. We got her on the podcast, and we're going to talk about female rock stars. We're going to, No, not female rock stars. We're going to talk about rock stars. We're going to talk about the rock stars that are interviewed in this book and learn a little bit about what it's like to be a woman on the road. Yeah, just a female coming up in the world of rock and roll. They all have great story, really great eye-opening stories. And so does Kat, our friend Kat. So we're going to talk to her. But before we talk to Kat, we got to talk about social media. Where would they find us, Holly? Please find us at WDDIM podcast on social media and What Difference Does It Make podcast on YouTube, where you can see us with Kat and all of our other interviews that we've done over the years and clips from concerts that we've seen and other interviews we've done over the years. So please check us out. Yeah. So let's get into the virtual studios right now. This is Catherine Yeski taylor She is the author of She's a Badass on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Hey. Hi. 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 How are you? Good. Nice to meet you, Beth. Kat, can we call you Kat? Your full name, I think, is on the book. Yeah, Catherine Yeski taylor is the writing name I go by, but with my, my real-life people, I go by Kat because, you know, no one has time for Catherine, <laughs> Catherine? Yeski taylor I'm ready to just fire the questions. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I'm curious, what was the impetus for this book? I've interviewed a lot of women over the years who had stories about what happened to them as they came up through the music business. So the kind of stories that I heard for this book were not new to me. I had interviewed one of the members of L7 for an article. And right after that, I got contacted by a literary agent who said, I really like your writing style. And have you ever considered writing a book? 
and suggested writing a book about women in rock and feminism. And as soon as he said that, I thought, yeah, I should do that because I know there's enough stories out there. I know this from the interviews I've done. And so as soon as we started shopping around the book, we got some interest from publishers and we signed with Backbeat, who have been great. You know, they've let me take this topic and really run with it. You start the book with your own personal stories. Did you find that you need to be assertive, like extra assertive? I did when I first started out because I had the kind of double whammy of being female and being very young. When I started, I was 16 and I probably looked 12. And I, I sound young still, I know, when I do phone interviews with people sometimes. They think I'm younger than I am. And so I think there's a certain level of you know needing to prove myself that I've had to go through in my career. And when I talk to women musicians, it's a similar thing. I think it's true for all women in this business, maybe all women in general, where sometimes you feel like you have to prove yourself a little bit more than maybe your male counterparts do. I know when I was starting off as a teenager in this business, I had older male writers not really want to let me in the club and sometimes say really rude things to me, which I talk about in the intro to this book. I just don't think that would have happened if I had been a male teenager trying to do this. I mean, Cameron Crowe is a case in point. Cameron Crowe got famous doing this for Rolling Stone when he was a teenager. And, you know, of course, the film Almost Famous based on his life. So I do think there has been an element of women in the music business needing to do a little bit above and beyond compared to their male peers. How did you end up choosing the women that you were speaking to in the book? Well, I started out by asking people that I'd interviewed before. I've interviewed thousands of people in my career by now. And so I just thought about the ones who had seemed to have really interesting stories and who had been really forthcoming with me, you know, people I hadn't had to pry answers out of. So I approached them first and just sent the articles I had written and said, hey, remember when I interviewed you for this? Would you be willing to talk to me again for this book? And then once they said yes, the other third of the people I included in this book were people that I had never interviewed before, and they signed on because of the people who were already attached to the project. You covered a wide variety of genres and ages, and it was thorough. Yeah, well, rock is a pretty broad genre. I wanted it to be a book about women in rock. I didn't want to open it up wider than that because I feel like out of all the genres, maybe rock is lagging behind other genres in terms of women's equality. Country music these days, uh, I do a lot of interviews with country artists and it seems pretty equal there in terms of women getting attention. Hip hop, pop. But for whatever reason, rock music seems to have always been more of a boys club. And so that's why I specifically chose to focus on that genre for this book. Did you have a set uh, order of questions. Reading the book, it seemed like there was this order of the way the book kind of runs. Are you a feminist? I'm sure was when you asked everyone. Yeah, I wanted to have some ability to have some through lines through right. the book, you know. And so, yes, I'm asking about feminism specifically as the focus of this book. Definitely that was at the top of the list. I also wanted to really ask people about their lives Uh, in general, specifically their childhoods, because I felt like if I could understand where somebody came from, their background, 
that would help explain to me about their attitudes on feminism and their approach to their careers and who they became as adults. There were some questions that I asked everybody, but then I also left wiggle room where people could talk about whatever was most important to them. And everybody had different answers on that count. For example, Laura Veers talked a lot about motherhood. It was really important to her to discuss the challenges she had faced as a woman in the music business, who is also a single mother. So everybody in this book had a different focus in terms of the things that were most important to them, their priorities. So there were some things that were the same in terms of all these interviews, but I also wanted to make sure that it wasn't all like samey, samey, you know, yeah. and that it just read like, okay, here's this round of questions with this person. So I hope I struck the right balance between being able to compare and contrast among women with the questions that I asked. Can I ask about Laura Veers? Did that surprise you? She said being a mother on tour was easy for her. She found that easy. Was that, which I found surprising, but you know, yeah, I'm not a mother. Yeah, that did surprise me, okay. actually. Um, and Exine Cervenka in her chapter, Exine Cervenka of X said the same thing. But certainly there were other women in the book who talked about just the logistics of doing this, like Ann Wilson and, and Suzanne Vega talked about motherhood and the things they had had to do in order to juggle their careers and going on tour specifically seemed to be the biggest challenge. How do you do that when you're a mother and still want to take your children along? And I thought that was interesting because the women who talked about motherhood did point out that for male artists, it's pretty typical for them to just leave them at home with their partner. They don't generally bring their kids on the road uh, the way women want to do. So I thought that was a really interesting point. I had never really thought about that before, but once they said it, I thought, you know, that's true. I hear a lot of artists, um, when I interview them and they're on the road, they'll mention, oh, you know, my wife and kids back home. They're not always with them. I want to point out, though, about Laura Veers. She said it was easy to take them on tour when they were little, little. But when she took them on tour, when the kids were a little bit older, she had nannies and she basically had a staff with her. Yeah. So. You have to reach a certain level in your career to have it be an easy flow, you know, at least yeah. be able to bring someone along who can watch the kid when you're on stage. So that is a fair point. People just starting out don't have that luxury of hiring staff. I think there are some unique challenges. And I was glad that people really on that particular point had a wide range of opinions on the matter. Yeah, sometimes you have to be hit in the head with it, right? To realize that it's not equitable by any means, because even if you're a female touring musician, you're still expected to do the job that is perceived by being the more present parent. And yeah. you're looked at differently if you're not. Something that really struck me. So using the word feminist, how many of the artists, and as Dave pointed out to me a little bit earlier, the older ones don't like to identify themselves that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that was a little surprising to me too, when I started doing these interviews. But they still seem to, even though they didn't want to uh, tag themselves with that label, they still felt the same way mm -hmm. as, you know, the artists that were a little that are a little bit younger that don't have any problem calling themselves feminists. Yeah. Well, that's why I included those artists who had a problem with the label in this book still, because in their way, they're still feminists. You know, they're still in, in terms of they want female equality. They just maybe had a problem with what that word has come to mean in some people's minds. You know, some people say you think of a feminist, you think of somebody who's 
very strident, maybe overzealous. Maybe they're worried that it has the connotation that you're a man hater. It's not that they aren't for women's rights and women's equality. It's just that they don't want that particular label attached to them. So I thought that was really quite interesting that they expressed it in that way. And I think it made the book a lot more well-rounded because I assume that's going to be reflected in the people who read this book, that there's going to be people who read this who think that women should get equal pay for equal work and things like that, but don't want to be called a feminist. For various reasons. It, it was really surprising because then when you go on to read the, the stories of these women, they experienced, they had similar experiences, you know, from mm-hmm. with male counterparts. So it's a label, but now it's, a, it's so much broader. It's more encompassing. The label of feminism isn't just male and female equality. And I know some of these women are older. Yeah, they range in age from their mid-70s down through their early 30s. And I ordered the book, you might have noticed, from oldest to youngest. For this reason, I wanted to have people be able, as they read through the book, to see how attitudes and approaches have changed over the generations. And some things haven't changed. Some things have. And that seemed like the simplest way to really be able to clearly show these things. So in the book, I think it was Paula Cole who was talking about the waves of feminists. Can you define which, like, there was first, second, third, fourth, like those eras? Do you know, what were those eras specifically? Well, it's pretty nebulous. I mean, if you look online, it's pretty uh, ill-defined, you know. Um, First wave, you'd say, going way back into, like, the... 1900s, 1930s, 1940s, back into wanting to get the right to vote, you know, the basic thing like that. And then second wave in the 70s, Gloria Steinem, people like that, who really kind of gave it more of an activist bent. Third wave, I guess you generally define as happening in the 80s and 90s, riot girl, things like that. And then now, currently, by some people's accounts, we're in a fourth wave of feminism, which encompasses things like Me Too. And of course, now, with the attitude of, we shouldn't even be saying male, female, there are many genders, you know, the the whole um, discussion that's happening around gender now. Yeah, I, I was curious about that too. And it did seem fluid when I, you know, when I looked it up. It's kind of like, it's really hard to define like in terms of years or specific types of movements that were within them because everybody seems to have a different uh, definition depending on what generation they're from themselves even. So what would your definition of feminist be? Currently, my definition of feminism would be that we uh, want equal rights in terms of all aspects of our lives, not just employment, but in terms of all opportunities in all aspects of our lives. And by that same token, the same responsibilities, because I really hope that people recognize that when you get more rights, that also brings a certain level of responsibility with it too. I mean, that means you have to step up and actually do things to maintain it and to carry it on. That seemed to be the through line throughout all of these stories is that these Mm -hmm. women, clearly they work their asses off and then, you know, they achieved a certain level of success, but you got to keep working to to keep that up. Is that what you found as well? Just they work even harder than when they first found success. Yeah. All these women, I think you could probably say are workaholics to some degree and that's what's helped them stay successful. I think that's what you have to have in order to succeed and remain in the music business. I mean, it's one of the most cutthroat businesses there is. I mean, along with things like the film industry, well, really any entertainment business type of job, I think you really have to have that fire in you 
to keep going even when the chips are down. Everyone's career is going to have ups and downs. And the ones who survive seem to be the ones who don't give up, even when they might be going through a period where things aren't going so well. But by also, I would say like the same principle applies to feminism also. I mean, I hope I made the point also with feminism in general that the strides that we've made, that needs to be maintained too. I mean, just because we have reached a certain level of success with gaining equality doesn't mean that we can now relax and say, oh, we've arrived now. I think Toby Vale put it really well in her chapter where she said, progress isn't linear, it can go backwards. You know, we can lose ground if we're not careful. And so I hope that that's another message that people can take away from this book is that, yes, the woman who came before you struggled and fought to get things to where they are today, the rights that we're enjoying today. Uh, But that doesn't mean it's going to stay that way unless we work to keep it up. It seems to me our kids' generation, it's because some of the things that we experienced are so unfathomable to them. It's a combination of knowing it's on their shoulders, but also expecting it. This isn't going to be an issue for them, which I think is also healthy, that I expect to be treated completely equal. Yeah. And in in its way, that also helps to maintain. I mean, if there's the majority of people with that attitude, that will help to continue things. It was interesting. I did another podcast a couple of weeks ago with a couple of young women who were, I would say, somewhere in their 20s. And they were just aghast at some of the stories that some of the older women in this book told. They'd never heard these things. And some of the women they had never heard of. And so they looked them up and listened to their music for the first time. And it was really interesting to talk to them and be reminded that, you know, some of these stories that I've heard for decades now, some of these women I've known about for decades, for some people, this is going to be brand new. I think it's uh, really easy for us to just assume that everyone knows what we know. And so it's good to be reminded sometimes that you have to remember that someone's learning something that you know really well for the first time right now. And so you have to be patient with them and not just be dismissive or expect them to immediately be up to speed. We are talking with Catherine Yeske-Taylor and the time has come to take a break. So see you on the other side. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the What Difference Doesn't Make podcast and our guest, Catherine Yeske-Taylor, author of She's a Badass, Women in Rock Shaping Feminism. I had mentioned to Holly that it seems like a, a great book for people that are 20 and, and younger to, uh, you know, just as like a, that are interested in the business and to kind of learn from from history of like what they might be up against. And I'm sure a lot of them don't even know Amanda Palmer and the Dresden Dolls like that. I remember they got this huge following through her, through her, just her own doing clearly. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, it was just phenomenal. Yeah. She talks a lot about that in this book and some of the blowback she received because of that, you know, refusing to work within the standard system. And that was really interesting and it's really gained her a lot of freedom. But again, you know, she's had to be really strong because, People come at her and she doesn't have a big record company mm -hmm. fielding things for her. You know, there is nobody between her and the fans, as it were, you know. And, and so you have to be pretty tough in order to take on that kind of position. The record companies we assumed, I can't remember who it was, said that they, no, this this photo shoot, no, this is not the the image I want to portray. Yeah, that was um, Hart, Ann Wilson talking was, about Hart. Yeah. And yeah, that kind of thing happened. Also, there were several women who mentioned up through the 90s um, that it was still happening that radio programmers would not put their single into rotation, their latest single, because they would say things like, oh, there's too many women on the radio right now. We have to wait, which is absurd. I mean, we have one male singer after the other on the radio. Why couldn't there be women like that too? And that has gotten better, but I mean, that wasn't that long ago, you know, the nineties to have that attitude still prevalent. And I, I didn't realize that it was still going on until I interviewed people for this book, that it was still happening um, relatively recently like that. I mean, that's not really that long ago in the whole scheme of things. You have a story in there where uh, like it was a radio programmer, just like, Good nature, you know, just being kind of trying to be like, uh, yeah, just you honest. understand, yeah, you, you understand, right yeah, now. clearly. We I mean, love you your don't, record, but we can't, yeah, we, we we can't have two females in a row, right? You know, yeah. you know, you understand that no one wants to hear two females back to back, that's crazy, yeah. And, and then that, women talked about how that affected their career, like L7, you know, for mm -hmm. a while there, they were in the same pack as Nirvana and Soundgarden and all those bands that just blew up and became huge. And Danita Sparks of L7 was talking in this book about how she wondered 
you know, what they could have achieved if they had been given the same mm -hmm. airplay that those other bands had been, but they were artificially suppressed. And so it's always in the back of our mind of, could we have been as big as Soundgarden? Could we have been as big as whatever other band that was on the radio a lot at that time? Yeah. That's how we learned about our music back then when that, when the, that movement yeah, no about. internet. That was it. <laughs> Whatever they played on the radio is what you knew about. So, yeah. Yeah. One of the common experiences that all of the artists are having, even through today, the, you know, the most current artists, you're questioned a little bit more, no matter what you say. I'm my, I'm my own person. I'm an individual. I'm producing my own record. You're still questioned. Even today, you're, you're still questioned a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But also I want to go back to some of the experiences again, growing up when we did, there were things that we just accepted. This is, this is the way it is, the way people spoke to you, the things people said in your presence, that men said in your presence. And uh, Catherine Popper, the story she told about Levon Helm, he made a comment, and I say he's in his seventies and he made the comment, you know, you should wear a dress. His, I guess, frame of reference for that was his, his sister played and, you know, she wore a dress and she didn't sound outwardly offended by that. She said, oh, he's, you know, he's an older man. You know, this is how he, he grew up. And this is what I find myself saying sometimes, you know, the to my kids. This is the generation. This is how we grew up. Still not okay, but we accept yeah. it from that generation a little bit more. Yeah, those kind of stories came up a lot. I mean, I remember that from my own early days as a journalist, you know, early 90s. I mean, it wasn't uncommon for some male coworker to call you sweetie all the time, you know, honey, things like that, yeah. that I don't think that would be tolerated now. And I think we tolerated it then just because that, first of all, like you said, it's just the way it was, but also we knew that the men saying that weren't always saying it in a mean way. I think they thought they were being, nice and it's only now with hindsight that we look back and say oh well you know actually that was kind of demeaning when you did that it, it meant that you thought that I was beneath you in some way or it was diminished me and this is how progress works though I mean you know it's hard to look back at some of the things that we tolerated and say well why did we put up with that but things were a little different then. And also, I would point out back then, if I had complained to someone about that, nobody would have done anything about it. Nobody probably would have cared. They might have even told me that I was being overly sensitive. So I think that's one thing that has changed a lot now is women know they can speak up and people will hear them more and take it seriously in a way that hasn't happened until relatively recently. You started out in the early 90s. So that's when the Lilith Fair concert tour started. I, I imagine it was, it probably felt like almost not like a victory lap, but like, look, we were selling out these shows, men and women going to these shows. We deserve a place at the table, you know? Yeah, but I do remember at that time what a big deal. I mean, the people made a huge fuss like, oh, these women are doing this. We can't believe it. I mean, it almost felt like people were amazed that women could pull this off, which is strange again. I mean, like there, how many festivals have you seen where the, the lineup was all men and nobody thought twice? Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting at the time that people kind of were incredulous almost <laughs> and, and just kind of acted like we can't believe they're actually managing to do this kind of thing. By many markers, you know, we've come really far and I'm, I'm so pleased to see that. When I talk to some of the younger women for this book, there's some things that still linger, you know, some aggravations. A big one is when they go into venues and they want to set up their equipment and 
invariably it seems like there's some dude who works at the venue who wants to come up and say something like, Hey, little lady, let me help you with that. You know, do you know what an amp is? You know, that kind of thing, assuming they don't know their own equipment or how to do their own job. And um, that was something that came up even with the younger artists. So that apparently is still an issue when you're a touring musician. Yeah. Conversely. Well, just one example, you mentioned that at the Metro in Chicago, that the, they're actually very concerned about women or they ask the right questions. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That uh, venue was singled out by, I think it was Shade Sanchez uh, of LA Witch, I think it was, saying this venue asked us, do we have any stalkers? Do we have any overzealous fans that we should look out for, you know, trying to keep them safe? And that was another thing that was kind of a through line in this book, you might have noticed, where women talk about safety. And that is something that I don't think that male musicians have to consider nearly so much. Women on tour are especially vulnerable. You're in a place where you're unfamiliar with. You may not know that you're in a dodgy area. You're kind of out there on your own uh, a lot of the times, just you and your bandmates, maybe a tour manager. It can be a little dangerous sometimes. You know, people talk in this book about how scary it can be as an up and coming artist to try to get paid at the end of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, Amy Ray talked about that really movingly in her chapter, talking about how the Indigo Girls, when they started out, she would go to get paid, and, and you know, sometimes promoters would shortchange them, and she didn't feel safe to challenge them because they would get in her face and get physically threatening with her. I'm not sure that that is something that male artists uh, encounter quite so much. Didn't she say, did Amy say that Emily got hit once? Yeah. To her? yeah. There are a couple stories in this book that are downright horrific, I would say, stories of actual assault. But I will point out that all these women did not let those experiences crush them. You know, they picked themselves back up and carried on and were resilient. And it's maddening that they had to go through those things, but also really amazing to to see as role models that they, they were still strong anyway and didn't let that ruin them. And I guess they felt safe with you because wasn't it Catherine Popper who wanted for the first time talked about Brian Adams? Yeah, and- that was interesting. There were a couple of people who said, you know, I've never mentioned this publicly before. I rarely talk about this publicly. Toby Vale had a couple of things in her chapter like that. And I felt really honored. I I will say that all the women that agreed to do this book, they all came to me really open and candid in a way that I really appreciate because as interviewers, you must encounter too sometimes you have someone come into an interview and it seems like they're sitting there with their arms folded. You have to pry answers out of them. And so I was really glad that these women were very enthusiastic about this project and and really came into it wanting to be open and honest it seemed and 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 I really appreciate that very much it does seem for us and and probably for you with this particular topic that when someone is interested once they start opening up on a topic in which they're interested in in your case music and feminism people just do want to keep talking they don't mind once they start yeah if they're engaged yeah. on the topic Bonnie Bloomgarden of Death Valley Girls is one of the people who was really forthcoming in her chapter. And she actually has a podcast also, Death Valley Girls podcast. And I talked to her for that uh, a couple of weeks ago. And she was saying that she reread her chapter just before the podcast. She hadn't really thought about it since, you know, the interview that Mm -hmm. we'd done for it. And she was kind of startled at how 
much she <laughs> revealed in her chapter, you know, of course, it's too late now. She's fine with it. But she also said she had a moment of, oh, my God, I can't believe that I said quite as much as I did. I hope that's all right. But she said she was also really relieved because she read her chapter first and, and then she was worried that she was going to seem like some kind of weirdo, like some kind of outlier with her views and the things she said. But then when she went back and read everybody else's chapters, she realized she wasn't. So I hope that there will be other women who, as they're reading this book, will feel less alone in their views because there really is such a wide range of views expressed in this book that I think most people will be able to find someone that seems to align with their own personal views in this. I guess it's kind of like the, the songwriting process. Sometimes, you know, someone's writing a song and like, am I saying too much? Am I relating? <laughs> will people relate to this? And then yeah. they put it out and like all of a sudden they hear back like, oh, yeah, I, this is what I want to hear. Or they're, you know, yeah, I felt a little bit about that when I was writing the introduction. I did not want to put myself in this mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> But my agent said, you know, you have to, when (laughs) I was writing the book proposal, he said, you have to write an introduction that I can send around with this book proposal. You have to prove why you're the right one to write this book, why you understand this topic. And the only way you can do that is by telling your own story in the introduction. Because obviously in the chapters, I'm not inserting myself at all. So I did that and I didn't really want to. Uh, And then I got this deal. And as I was talking with the editors at the publishing house uh, for the first time after I had signed the contract, they told me that one of the big reasons why they decided to take this book is because they really liked the introduction and what I said about my own story. So at that point, I kind of thought, all right, well, I guess I'm just going to have to Except that you know, my story is out there too now and it's going to be in this book. And I guess I'm okay with that if, if it resonates with other people in some way. It's important. I think especially, you know, as some kind of artist, it's important to let people in a little bit. I think it does give, it gives credibility. It makes you more interesting and well-rounded to people. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, I wanted to show it wasn't just female musicians in this business. I mean, people want to read about the musicians because they're the famous ones. They're the ones whose work really resonates. But I think every woman in this music business, I mean, as a DJ, you know, you, you must have encountered things. And women I talk to who have been publicists or A&R or managers, they have stories, tour managers. And Susan Rogers, who wrote the afterword for this book, definitely She was the recording engineer for Prince when he was at his commercial peak. So she definitely had a front row seat to what it was like to be a woman in a position that was still to this day, very male dominated. So it's not just the musicians, it's all women in the music business. Yeah. Were you friends with Susan? How did that come about you put that as the afterword but why as yeah. the afterword and and, and how'd you find because well, i already had my introduction and so my publisher felt it was important to keep that as the introduction i i thought about doing this as a forward but then i thought no um as an afterword it might be good because then she could do kind of a summary of the book overall and she did a fantastic job of that as well as working in um, a couple stories of her own i got her because a friend of mine, Karen Stackpole, works for Dolby Sound in San Francisco, where I lived for a few years. And, and I kept in touch with Karen since I moved away. And they had um, Susan come as a speaker at Dolby. 
And Karen and Susan had kept in touch. And so when Karen found out that I was writing this book, she said, oh, you really should get Susan to write something for it. And she gave me Susan's email address. And I wrote her and explained who I was and what I was doing. And to my great fortune, she agreed. So I'm very honored to have her as part of this book. I I thought it worked great as an afterword. Yeah. Yeah. And her writing style is quite different from mine. And so I just thought it was really interesting in in some ways, you know, she supported a lot of the things that were said in the book, but also offered a really interesting contrast in some ways. I just thought she was a really important voice to include. And illustrates how it isn't just musicians. Mm -hmm. Especially recording engineers. I mean, that's still hugely male dominated. I mean, it's still very unusual to hear about a female recording engineer to this day. I think it would also be shocking to this generation to learn how you're still inclined to behave as a male, to behave as, as you think a male might or dress like a male might, to be accepted, to be more accepted. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that she used that kind of example to illustrate her experience. What was it Prince said <laughs> about her dress? Oh, yeah. He's asking her, like, why are you wearing that stupid shirt? You know, because she was trying to dress very mannish and he just wasn't going to have it. So (laughs) 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 because he could tell that she wasn't really comfortable doing that. She says in the afterward how, you know, if she'd had her way, she'd have worn quite different things, you know, blouses, dresses, and didn't feel that she could do that and be respected in her job. And it wasn't until Prince told her that she could dressed the way she wanted, that she felt free to do so. And that in itself is really telling, too, in the 80s that a woman needed a man to be able to essentially give her permission Mm -hmm. to do that. Just to think about the things, not just that you endured, but just the conversations that would take place, you know, when you were present is unimaginable now. You know, just the things that were said that were perfectly accepted. Yeah. Well, and, you know, as far as dress code goes. Danita Sparks talks about that in her chapter too, about when they started out in the LA scene, even other women were kind of writing them saying, uh, they're trying to look like men, they're trying to act like men. And so a couple of women made the point in this book that it's not always even men who are making negative comments. It can be other women as well. Sometimes other women aren't supportive. Catherine Popper talked about that when she addressed working with Ryan Adams and and the blowback she got when the scandal kind of came up around him and his treatment of women. And when she refused to publicly condemn him and she explains why she made that decision in her chapter, the way women came after her with knives out, being a traitor to her own kind, essentially, and her anger at that, at being treated that way. It's interesting. Women are definitely not immune. Everyone's got an opinion, but she was only speaking to her experience. Yeah. Well, you know, she explains how working with him in many ways was a great experience. And so she didn't have the problems that the the woman who were accusing him of bad treatment had had. She didn't feel it was fair to say something had happened that hadn't. And she wasn't going to be forced into making something up. So that was an interesting take on that, that whole situation, I thought. Have you ever jumped in the van with the band and done like a Cameron Crowe type piece on a I van? did in the 90s. I went on the road with Dokken. Nice. Rocking with Dokken. <laughs> and how is Don on the road? It was every bit as, you know, crazy as you might expect, given for people who don't know who Dokken is. <laughs> 
Dokken is a metal band. They still exist. They just put out a new album and I interviewed Don uh, a few weeks ago, actually. And they were part of the infamous, what was called the hair metal scene and uh, that originated in Los Angeles in the 1980s where men dressed in spandex and makeup and, you know, uh, were basically seemed to be doing their best to look like women. But it was also notoriously a very sexist scene. You know, women were kind of treated like pieces of meat. So... It was interesting to go on the road with the band when it was the 90s and it was no longer the heyday of that scene. And they were still drawing crowds, you know, they were still selling out shows, but you could tell that there was some confusion on the part of the band and the audience of why certain behaviors that had been accepted before were not accepted now. Like, I remember they gave me the little room at the back of the tour bus as my own, essentially, but there was no lock on that door. So I woke up one night and one of the roadies was um, trying to uh, paw at me. And I told him in no uncertain terms to go away. And the next day I mentioned this to the tour manager that this had happened. And he came back and said, I'll never forget it. He said, well, what'd you expect wearing a dress like that, getting on a bus full of guys like this? Yeah. So what do you do? I mean, what do you, so do you just walk away? I mean, I mean, at that point, you have to kind of let it go. I mean, this is what we were talking about earlier, where you could complain, but someone might not care, (laughs) you know, and this Mm. is before internet, really. I think I had a little flip phone cell phone on me, but who was I going to call? And I mean, it was just a different world. This is what I mean. This was just accepted. So you said you said no. You did what you, you logged your complaint. This is how it was. There was nowhere further to go. To be fair, though, I did say something after that to Don Dockin himself, and he put a stop to it immediately. Nice. So, go yeah. Don. <laughs> yeah, go Don. Um, but then uh, the sound man a couple of times, like, made them, because it was the sound man who had done that, and then the sound man made them sound terrible at the next show, and then there was a big fight. And then I remember Don saying something along the lines of, see, this is why we can't have women on the bus. Nobody even thinking how offensive that in itself is. You know, it just started this whole thing. Did you put it in your piece or was it just, this is just something that you had to file away for? Oh, no, I didn't. Because a lot of these stories uh, were kind of he said, she said type of things. Mm -hmm. You know, I had no proof. You know, when I woke up in the middle of the night, I didn't have my tape recorder going. Right. Yep. And someone could just deny, oh, I didn't do that. What's she talking about? She's a crazy person and probably would say that kind of thing to save themselves. And so you just kept your mouth shut because you didn't want to open a can of worms that might end up making you look bad because you couldn't prove the things that you were saying. I mean, as negative as social media gets, do you think people feel safer because of social media and everyone has a camera now? Is that something that... uh, In some ways. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways. And I think just the prevailing attitude now is that these things aren't acceptable. And I think now if a woman says something like that happens to them, even if they don't have proof, people give them a benefit of the doubt much more now than they used to. Yeah. The first thought is to go with what the woman is to to automatically believe them as mm-hmm. opposed to not believe them and then work right. from there. Right. Yeah. Okay, so the piece ultimately, how long did you tour with them? Oh, that was only for a week. It wasn't that long, but, you know, it was long enough to, you know, get a pretty good dose of what that life was like. 
Did you like it or is it uh, not for you? For the most part, I did. I yeah. mean, like, um, actually, it was really fun to see how things really worked behind the scenes. And I actually like that band. Uh, so getting to see them play a lot was really fun. And with the exception of that one dude, everybody treated me really well. And uh, it was a good experience. And I was happy to talk to Don again recently. So did he remember so, you? No, he did not. Oh, <laughs> this was a long time ago. No, this I, is- I know. I want to read this piece now. Where was, is it still available? Or <laughs> you know, he asked me where it ran and I can't even remember now, you know, and this is the other thing that's really frustrating as a journalist who started off pre-internet is that, <laughs> you know, a lot of my earliest work is no longer available. It, it's just gone. You don't have it in a file and with type, typewritten pages. <laughs> uh, my mom did keep it in a closet for many years, but you know, the last move she made, she's like, this is ridiculous. I'm not lugging this around anymore. And so mm. she got rid of it. It's good and bad, right? To to not be able to have certain things floating around forever, I guess. That's true. It'll turn up somewhere, I think. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God. Who was it for? Well, I can't remember who it was yeah, for work. now. I've written for so many. And at that point, I was writing for a lot of regional places, you know, Boston, Denver, whoever would have me. So it could have been any one of those. Yeah. And the, your story, you started out in, in high school at the school paper. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I happened to be in Atlanta where they were having a really great music scene at that time. I mean, that was when Black Crows and Indigo Girls were becoming really successful. And I was going to shows as much as I could. And I I had been a, a devoted reader of Rolling Stone since I was old enough to scrape up allowance money to, to get a subscription. And I just thought, well, I want to write about things like I see in Rolling Stone. I want to do that kind of writing, not boring things like covering football games and student government meetings. And um, so I just started calling management companies and asking if they would let me interview people. And they would think it was absolutely just hilarious that some kid was asking for this for their school paper. But quite often they would say yes, because Mm -hmm. they just thought it was cool that some kid had the guts to even ask. And so I I started off doing that. And then I went to journalism school in Athens, Georgia, which was also having a moment because of REM and B-52s. And same thing, you know, I was able to kind of cut my teeth talking to some really remarkable people in a scene that was really special. So I'm really grateful that I just had the absolute good fortune to be in places that were really special at that time and um, were really willing to help me get my foot in the door. Persistence, I guess. All you have to do is ask. That's that's where we get our pie. That's how we get our interviews. You just ask and yeah, occasion, right. occasion, you never know. All right. The worst well, you I, can do is say no. And so, you know, right. it's That's, no worse than the worst case scenario if you don't ask, right? Right. So. <laughs> I guess I should ask about, I mean, as a fan of Rolling Stone, when you saw like, what was it, last year, Young <laughs> Winner's comments, is it just disappointing or is it just like, okay, well, it is what it is or what do you, um, what do you I do I guess with? I wasn't really surprised. I mean, just comes coming up in the music business when I did, I just kind of assumed that a lot of men in positions of power were probably that way, unfortunately. You might have noticed in her chapter, Tanya Donnelly talked about when she was really doing well with Belly in the 90s. She got a magazine cover and went to the photo shoot and the the publisher of the magazine showed up at the photo shoot and asked her if she would go to dinner later on. And she said, yes thinking it was a business meeting. So she brought along her manager, and a couple other people, and quickly realized that he was very upset because he had thought he had been asking her out on a date. And 
when she made it clear she wasn't interested in a, a romantic connection with him, he killed the magazine cover. So these kind of things happened. And this was about the same time that I was coming up in the business too, in the nineties. And um, so now those kind of stories don't surprise me. Although I am glad to see that there's some consequence to it now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like it was said, two steps forward, one step back, uh, mm-hmm. you know, 2016, we made a step back as well. And I'm, you know, that was also a, a through line, th- the repeal of Roe Wade. And um, yeah, people were very passionate about that when we did these interviews, because that had just happened about the time that I was conducting these interviews. In fact, I never was the one who brought that up. People brought that up on their own. Uh, because like I said, I had some questions that I asked everybody, you know, and then I kind of opened it up to them to talk about whatever was important to them. And that's what a lot of people wanted to discuss because that was a really big news topic at the time. And a lot of people were really upset about it. So I thought that was really interesting. I will say as a journalist, I wish I could have found somebody who had an opposing opinion on that one, just to express all sides of that story. You know, I wish I could have found somebody who isn't pro-choice or it has a more conservative point of view but of course the entertainment business skews liberal so that's how this book kind of comes across but it wasn't because i tried to make it so that's just how it turned out it's almost like now when you're searching for that for for a perspective like that i would think people would be wary you know you're gonna you're going to skewer them for their view yeah how do you seek someone out that has a, a view like that in the in the music industry Yeah. And I didn't want to start going down that path of seeking people out because they'd say what I wanted them to say. I wanted to be a good journalist on this, like my background, my training has taught me to do and go where the story leads instead of trying to lead the story. I reminded myself throughout this whenever somebody said something that I disagreed with, because it did happen. I mean, people express things in this book that I don't personally agree with. But it's not my job to editorialize. This is not that kind of book. My job was to ask people the questions and then step aside and let them express their truth as they see it and tell that story as faithfully and as objectively as I can. Your book was great. It was really well done and interesting and appealing. And I think you'll have a broad audience for it. I hope so. I mean, there's no way to express absolutely every opinion under the sun, but I really do feel like the 20 women I interviewed for this have such a broad variety in so many ways. The Not just the opinions they express about feminism and other topics, but the kind of music they play. It's everything from very mainstream people to very underground, cutting edge people, all different ages from mid 70s down through early 30s. I really tried my best to be as representative as I could so that anyone reading this should be able to find somebody who expresses views that are similar to their own. And so that hopefully will make them feel maybe less alone in the way that they think about things. You've already got some glowing reviews from like the the Violent Femmes and the Killing Joke. Yeah, the men who've really rallied around this book, you know, like Jazz Coleman of Killing Joke. And yeah, he was one of the earliest people to say that he would do a blurb. And my dear friend, Jesse Mallon, also gave me a beautiful blurb for the back of the book. I've been really gratified to see that there are a lot of men who are very interested in this topic. And you might have also noticed that another commonality amongst all these women is that they all made a point without me prompting them, of 
telling me stories about men who had helped them in their careers, who had been supportive. So this is not a male bashing book by any means. It's not a negative anti-male screed at all. The women were all very careful to say, like, look, I don't like it when men have treated me in this certain way, in these examples, but these other men were great and were really helpful. I think that's really important also to recognize that there have been plenty of male allies out there who have done just as much to help women, and they way outweigh the ones who've harmed, I think. And they all did that. All 20 of them have at least one story in their chapter where they expressed that kind of sentiment. I thought it was really great that they all had that on their minds, that they wanted to make sure that people know that they're appreciative of the men in their lives who've been supportive as well as the women. The book is She's a Badass, Women in Rock Shaping Feminism is the, the full title. And it's uh, available wherever you buy books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, bookshop.org if you'd like to support independent bookstores. And of course, your bookstore down the street should carry it. I'm really happy at the response so far. It's already uh, getting a second run in the printing because the response has been so great that my publisher told me yesterday, actually, that they had to order a second run because they need to make sure they can meet the demand. So that's really great. Congratulations in advance. Oh, and if people want to know, I post frequently on social media. If I can go ahead and plug my, my pages, I'm under Catherine Yeski Taylor, music journalist, and I'm on uh, Instagram and Facebook and threads under that title. Thank you, Kat. I think it's an, <laughs> an important document, and I, I, I hope that. Uh... Yeah, lot, I hope, so. I hope it's something us. that people, no matter what age they are, can take something away from it. I hope that older people can be gratified to see the progress that's been made. I hope younger people really have some eye-opening moments where they realize the struggles other people have had to go through in order to win us the rights we have now. I just hope that everybody will get something out of it, even if they come away disagreeing with most of it. I mean... That's fine, too, because I just would like this to really open up a dialogue. And so I hope it will do that. So, too. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Bye. Kat. So nice to meet you. Nice Bye. to meet you. All right, Holly. What do you think? First of all, you consider yourself a feminist? <laughs> that is a loaded question. And I am going with yes. I do feel like a feminist and I appreciate now my vision is that feminism encompasses all. It's not just women's rights. It is equal rights for all genders. So I'm, I'm going to say yes, I am a feminist. How about you? Do you, uh, are you a feminist? I tend to think yes. I don't think I would throw that word out as like Dave Sloan feminist, but if I'm asked directly, I am all for equal pay, equal rights for all genders. I am an, an ally is what you can call me. All right, enough with the tough questions. Uh, <laughs> wonderful talk with Kat, don't you think? She's great. Yeah, and the book was a good read too. Just these great stories of women that we've grown up listening to. So, And some of them I was not that familiar with. And I have checked out like Death Valley Girls and LA Witch. I have actually downloaded um, a couple of their albums and uh, I'm going to be listening to them in the near future now. So talking to Kat served duplicative purposes for you. Indeed. As it always does. I always learn something. Yeah. You do. I love you. You're so open to all of it. I admire that about you. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Speaking of open, how, how do we find out uh, what we're open to on our social media pages? That's a really good segue. I'm uh, trying. That was, I feel like I really forced that one. but uh, You yeah. did. Okay, but go with it. 
find us on social media at WDDIM Podcast and on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. Please subscribe, comment, let us know what you like, and we hope to see you there. Yeah, please subscribe. You can also find us on our website, WDDIMpodcast.com. That stands for What Difference Does It Make Podcast. Sign up for our newsletter. We put it out once a month. It's nice. You find out what we've been up to. Always a good read. We promise you'll learn something every month, at least one thing. Okay, so new episodes every Friday. So again, please subscribe. If you like what you hear, leave a review. Tell us what you think about us. We're open. You won't hurt our feelings, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, five stars, please. If you're, if you're going to leave a review, just five stars. Oh, so don't, we can't ask for that. I just did. We, we would like your honest opinion. No, 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 five stars. We want you to lie to us. Yeah, please lie, lie to us. <laughs> All right. Till next Friday with our new episode, whatever that may be. This is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.